the number one thing I always talk about is, you know, really listening to my own uh, intuition. I mean, you hear people say that, but I think it's really true as a founder and a visionary for a business. I think just listening to your gut is really important. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode of No Limits... Susan Feldman was an entrepreneur before she even used the word. She began her career in the apparel industry, eventually working her way up to the executive level for brands like Ralph Lauren and Liz Claiborne, and says she constantly found herself in entrepreneurial situations where she was able to take the reins and create something new within a big company. It was that experience that led her to create One King's Lane, the luxury furniture and home decor site she eventually sold to Bed Bath & Beyond. But today, she's taken all the lessons she learned along the way and created an entirely new company. And it all started when she realized the fastest-growing and economically influential demographic was being neglected. Here's Susan Feldman. Susan Feldman, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Um, For our listeners who are new to Susan, Susan is also the founder (laughs) of One King's Lane, the luxury furniture and home decor shop. They sold it to Bed Bath & Beyond in 2016, and this In the Groove is your new thing. It's my new thing. Yeah. It's time to get in the groove. (laughs) So, So how did you come up with In the Groove? So as it turns out, um, about the time that we were selling uh, One King's Lane, I just started talking to a lot of friends. I mean, just to give you a little bit of my background, I started One King's Lane when I was 53, which didn't seem to be, never really thought about it. But then, you know, sort of after the fact, it's like, oh, I guess that was kind of cool. I did that at 53 Um, and sold the company when I was 60, 61. And I like started talking to women and started hearing a lot of people saying things like, I feel invisible, I want to be relevant. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's, you know, wh- why is that? Like, wh- what's causing that feeling? And where are women my age hanging out digitally? And so I started, you know, digging around and really couldn't find anything online that spoke to me in what I thought was a cool, modern way. And I felt that if I could actually create something like that, that I could help all these women Uh, actually be in the groove by curating information that would come to them on a timely basis and give them information and knowledge about things that were going on, you know, around them. So whether it was acronyms their kids were using or the latest new direct-to-consumer great, you know, clothing line or a new uh, brand of cosmetics that, you know, we thought did wonders, just anything that would be, you know, helpful to making their life better. Um, we could do by curating that for them. Because, you know, as you know, today, there's just tons of information out there. And trying to figure out where to go and what to listen to can be certainly overwhelming. Totally. I mean, we're inundated with it constantly. Right, right, right. Your background, so you went to Stanford, you Mm -hmm. got your MBA at UCLA. Right. Were you always entrepreneurial? Was that always something you wanted? You know, back in the day, I don't don't think we even used that word. (laughs) 
Um, but I think, you know, I always, I worked in the fashion apparel business for the majority of my career. And I think even though I worked at large corporations, I constantly found myself in what I would call entrepreneurial situations where I was running sales organizations and I was running the team out of New York, but everybody else was in California. So I got to kind of do my own thing and create, you know, my own magic, so to speak. So I, I constantly was finding myself in what I felt were entrepreneurial positions. So I think when I finally decided to start one Kingsland, I was confident to just kind of go out and do it, you know, even though I didn't have the backing, obviously, of a large corporation. But I felt comfortable, uh, you know, doing all different kinds of things and what you have to do to get a company, you know, started and off the ground. You're still an advisor to One Kingsland at this point. I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there any thought in your mind when you were exiting that investment, uh, when you were exiting the company, hey, maybe I'd go back and work for a big company again? Um, I mean, you know, I, that's always could be a possibility. It's, I think it's a little tricky after you've done your own thing to do that. Um, and I just love building brands and starting things. So this just seemed to be like the better path for me right now. But you never know. <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, yeah. I guess you're leaving the door open a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, why not? Right. Like the right opportunity showed up. I would totally entertain it. What did you want to be when you were a kid, Susan? What did I want to be? Well, originally I wanted to be uh, a teacher uh, and work with uh, kids that had uh, learning disabilities. Uh, I did a lot of that when I was in high school, but then I had retail in my blood. So my dad was a retailer, and I started working part-time at Macy's in high school and college, and I, I decided that I really you know, wanted to, to, to do that, to go into retail, and that's what I did. Before you became the founder of One King's Lane, mm-hmm. you had all of these executive roles at Ralph Lauren Swimwear, Polo. Mm-hmm. Um, you worked with Liz Claiborne. Yep. How did you make that choice initially to leave the security of a paycheck and that world to start your own thing? It was, you know, it was an interesting time. I mean, I worked in, you know, fashion apparel business basically my whole life. Um, and it, like everything else, it just changed. It was changing a lot. And you know, I would got to a point where I said, you yeah, know, this is really not as much fun as it had been. I'm really not enjoying this. It's got a little toxic, to be honest. And, you know, I said to my husband, like, I got to get out of here. I got to do either do something different or maybe retire even, you know. But I had had this idea for One King's Line, and I'd been talking about it for over a year. And he finally said to me, I give Bob a lot of credit. He's like, listen, if you have this idea and you really believe this is something then go do it and, you know, like either go do it or stop talking about it, basically. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to go do it. And, you know, so I, I feel like he kind of gave me that push that I needed to, you know, say it's okay and uh, give it a try. What's the worst that will happen? It won't work. You know, that's, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good for Bob. Thanks, Bob. Exactly. What do you think were the most important lessons you learned at One King's Lane that you're now applying to In the Groove? Yeah, I have to keep reminding myself of them, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, definitely listen. The number one thing I always talk about is, you know, really listening to my own uh, intuition. I mean, you hear people say that, but I think it's really true as a founder and a visionary for a business. I think that you have a very clear idea of where you want to take that business. And so I think sometimes you can get 
mixed messages from other people around you. So I think just listening to your gut, you know, is really important. Um, so that would be one thing. I think keeping it simple, which I think is really just something that I, I learned from the very beginning uh, of starting One King's Land. It's like people need to get it like immediately. Otherwise, you know, it's just too much going on in our world today. So, you know, just have to keep everything simple and pared down and, you know, easy. Um, so the, those are probably two big things that I learned. If you had to go back, would you have exited One King's Lane earlier? Uh, that's such a good question, Rebecca. Um, I think knowing what I know today, I think I would have done some things differently. And I think maybe I would have tried to do that earlier. Yeah, I think so. In terms of in the groove, when you're when you're building this from the ground up, what are mm. some of the most important things you think you've done to help really give it life in an early stage? Yeah, I think, well, I think first and foremost, it's, you know, you've got to like really understand and create the brand. And I think we've done that. That's through, you know, visual cues and language and, you know, anything that that you're doing around the brand has to be consistent. So you're constantly sending out that same message. And I think we've worked really hard to do that, whether, like I said, through you know, the logo or the graphics that we use, or really more probably important in this case, the language and the voice that we, you know, are speaking in, because we definitely try to have a good sense of humor and fit in the groove. <laughs> it is. I like the sense of humor you have. I like your I like your Instagram profile. It's it's fun. Yeah, yeah. We try to keep it fun. So if you're not having fun, then that's, you know, that's our number one thing. Got to have fun. How do you maintain the focus? Because I think that's a big challenge for all businesses and especially Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs when they're just getting started. A lot of people will come to you and say, oh, you should be this. You should do this. This would be so good. Yeah, I think, I mean, another great question. And I think if I had gone to number three of what I learned at One King's Lane, it would have been to stay focused because I think it is so easy to get distracted. And as you're starting to think about things and you have an idea to keep you know, adding things on and uh, saying, oh, we're doing this, we should add this on or that. And I think, you know, you really need to keep focused and stay focused on what your number one objective is. And like in our case, as an example, you know, we're, we're an original content and commerce site, but we understand the importance of community. And we have done some events, and I would love to do tons of events, but right now at the stage we're at, that's, you know, not probably going to be the main focus of what we're doing. We know we want to do it later down the road, but for now we're focusing on some bigger plays and getting the word out there and brand awareness and, you know, getting people to sign up for the email and things like that. So I think you have to keep reminding yourself that maybe these are things that you do down the road and they might make sense once you establish and prove your business, um, you know, to be strong and well and, you know, growing and things like that. In addition to having that strong point of view and that brand um, that resonates, how in this environment, you talked about how crowded it is, are there any tricks to breaking through and finding those people? Because I I mean, I even, for example, with No Limits, when we started, I'd say, I think we're having a conversation that has value, but how do we get to the people who would find it valuable? Hear more from Susan Feldman after a quick word from our sponsor. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash no limits. That's Indeed.com 
slash no limits. In addition to having that strong point of view and that brand um, that resonates, how in this environment, you talked about how crowded it is, are there any tricks to breaking through and finding those people? Because I, I mean, I even... For example, with No Limits, when we started, I'd say, I think we're having a conversation that has value, but how do we get to the people who would find it valuable? Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, I think that's probably our biggest challenge right now is that there's just a lot of noise to break through. Um, and I think it's like kind of test and iterate. I mean, obviously, there's people out there that know how to do this, you know, at a digital level. And, you know, we talk to them and work with them and there are new things happening every day. But I think... It's a multifaceted play. Like, it's not like one thing. Like, when we started One King's Lane, uh, you know, there were people around like Daily Candy who, you know, really had a lot of uh, power. And if you, like, they covered us the second day we went live and we picked up 25,000 email, you know, that day. Wow. Like, there's, there, I don't think there's anybody, uh, maybe some influencers, but it mm. has to be the right influencers today uh, that, you know, has that kind of, power. Um, And that can be tricky, too. I mean, I'm just I'm actually it's totally different. But I was thinking of the fire Festival documentary. Oh, my gosh. Right. And and how that tweet from Kendall Jenner and or it wasn't a tweet. It was the Instagram post from Kendall Jenner got all of those people to sign up to go. But I I believe just from my standpoint, that is like such a slippery slope. Obviously, fire Festival, you have a fraud there. But right, 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 right. But if you're building a legitimate business, partnering with an influencer and having an influencer share your message to get people to follow, I always wonder if there's true value in that. I think it has. I mean, I think, um, you know, it it depends to your point on who the person is and if you know them and if it's a good fit and if they're talking to the same audience that you're talking to. I mean, we've had a couple of really positive experiences with that. And the people that we partner with, not, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, smaller, but the smallness, you know, they're very targeted. Dedicated. And very much, yeah, dedicated to them and very much our consumer. So that was like super, like, effective. And I think, you know, going back to your question, I just think you have to try lots of different things. Some things mm-hmm. you think are going to be great and they're not so great. And other things you're like, oh, wow, that was like way better than I thought it was going to be. But I think it's just constant drumbeat. And hopefully at some point you break through and, uh, you know, start to get the kind of traction and I guess, you know, tip the scale, so to speak. But it's 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 a lot harder today for sure. What's something you tried that surprised you because it works so well? Uh, let's see. What I'm trying to think. Um, we haven't done tons of marketing, to be honest, to start off. We're just really starting that. But I, I would say that partnering with somebody that uh, actually I connected with on Instagram uh, was really effective for us. I mean, not that that was way better than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, she's a woman who lives in Montana and she's got her own blog and she's very different than we are, but there is a lot of synergy there. Mm -hmm. And I think she started covering, you know, she would be reposting things that we did and we started just picking up, you know, followers from that, which was sort of surprising. But I think because there was really good synergy between the two of us, that worked really well. 
It's an interesting point. I've heard this from a lot of people as well, and even some of the bigger brands out there that instead of working with like the mega influencers who have millions of followers, they're actually interested in the people who are more engaged and have sort of smaller but really dedicated communities around them. Yeah, no, I I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day, and now they're talking about nano influencers, and these are people (laughs) that have like under people are trying to lose their followers. Sorry, how many followers is like 5,000 or something like that. <laughs> but to your point, but they, you know, they have such a high uh, engagement and people really listening to them that they can, you know, put, I love this product. And then everybody that's following them actually goes out and, you know, does something with it. So it's, this is changing too, you know, so you ask the question, like, how do you do this? It's like, it'll be different three months from now. Yeah. You know? So that's part of the trick too. I don't know. Have you found any good tricks? Well, no, I, 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 Look, I think it changes every day. What what surprises me personally about Instagram is I could take a ton of time on a post that I think has some meaning and substance behind it and people will not have I mean, there will be very limited reaction to it, but I just post like a silly picture of myself on the weekend or something with my friends and everybody's into it. So it's so it's just funny because you can take all of this time. And sometimes actually, um, you know, this reminds me just briefly of, of a conversation I had with Carly Claus a while ago because she's she's so into teaching women how to code. And and I said to her, well, I I. 100% respect that and it's great what you're doing but if you look at the reaction to you like the reaction to you is people love your pictures of modeling the behind the scenes in your various in all of these different places in your life how do you get people to sort of eat the vegetables with the with the treats you know right and what did she say <laughs> uh, she she talked about the fact that it has to be a mix you know i think that Maybe there's a handful of people who have found a really great way to be if if they're if what they are, if who they are, their brand is just super serious and that's exactly what they are, then people are attracted to them for only that. But I think if people are coming to you because they are interested in your life, they're curious about who you are, then if you're not letting them see that, they're not going to be as inclined towards following you or engaging with you. Yeah. Well, I think this actually goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's just everybody's so busy. And so like you talk about your quick little posts that people, you know, you get way better engagement on than something where you take time to write something out. It's just because it's simple, right? And right. people get it in like a nanosecond and they're like, I like it. I'm on to the next one, you know, <laughs> unless you fall down one of those rabbit holes, those Instagram rabbit oh, yeah. holes. Yeah. Those are dangerous. Yeah. I try not to fall down too exactly, much. Exactly. Exactly. Do you, when you look back on everything, was there one particular tough lesson that you learned along the way? A tough lesson. Um, You know, I think that, I don't know that it was a tough lesson, but I think it it was a combination of two things. One, I did stay at the same company for a long time, and I think... I kind of wish maybe I had been a little more open to moving. What kept you from being open to that? Um, I think a couple of things. I mean, I think there were personal reasons, like halfway in the middle of that, I became a single mother and the security of this, you know, job was, you know, important to me. Um, it also was a job that, you know, as a single mother uh, worked well for me because I was in New York and the rest of the company was in California. So that just gave me some flexibility. But I think, you know, I wish I had been a little bit more open to, you know, maybe doing some different things. And then 
I think along the same lines, like I wish I had started my own business sooner. Like that, that has been, you know, an incredible part of my journey. I like that. What's been the worst advice you've received along the way? (laughs) Wow, there could be a lot of that. Um, The worst advice. Um, That's a good question. I mean, I think the worst, I don't know that it's specific advice, but I think this goes back to listening to your intuition. I think, you know, not listening to my intuition and believing that people that where I was working with, like in the case of One Kingsland, we had super smart investors that they knew more than I did. And I'm not sure that's always the, the case, you know? Yeah. So I think it's important. I, they bring tremendous value, of course, but I think there's certain things that they could never do because this wasn't their idea, you know? And so I think you do have to be true to your vision. Which is so difficult. I, I mean, look, I, I it's difficult and it's not at the same time. But I, to your point about people who are experts. I mean, oftentimes when I ask this question about worst advice, usually the advice isn't coming from some total dum-dum. Sometimes sometimes it is, but a lot of the time the advice is either coming from somebody who is really close to you, loves you, cares about you, and is trying to mitigate risk in your life. Or alternatively, it's coming from an expert who has a sense of having been there, done that, but in this case or in your case – they they didn't do what you've done. They didn't build it the way you built it. Exactly. So like the example that I would give for this uh, would be, you know, don't worry about profitability. Um, you know, that you're growing so fast that that's going to, you know, at the end of the day, take you to a place where you, you know, it will happen on its own just from the growth. And I think, you know, in a business like One King's Lane, which really is a retail business, I think you have to be profitable. It's hard to sell millions of dollars worth of things and not be profitable. So I think that was probably not great advice. How about management and leadership? How did you early in your career learn how to manage groups of people and lead them? You know, I think, listen, you, I think you learn by watching people that you're being led by. Um, I think, you know, you, you learn by reading books and, you know. Do you have any favorite books on management? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. That's, um, you know, I really enjoyed, I don't know, he's a little controversial right now, but uh, a couple of Howard Schultz's books, uh, not the one, I think it's like two books ago. I'm trying to, I think it was called Onward, maybe. Mm-hmm. That I found that to be really interesting Especially because, you know, it gave me a very different understanding of Starbucks and how they thought about the company and how they grew the company. And it was about him coming back, you know, as, you know, the CEO after he had left. I found that to be actually uh, pretty informative. Um, but that, that I enjoy that. So reading that. books and trial and error. Is there yeah. – I always wonder about – because I, I think when people – when you're early on in your career, you're you're trying so hard to work and stand out and be recognized by the mm-hmm. people who are leading you. And then you reach this point where all of a sudden you might have some headcount under you. Right. And those early management years can be, I think, filled with a lot of trial and error. They are, for sure. And and then you kind of learn as you go. Was there any anything that you learned in those early years that you can think back to where you, you wish you had known it before you started? I think uh, probably the one thing I would say is, you know, learning to listen to people. I think sometimes, especially as you're, you know, moving fast and things are happening, 
um, you're trying to, you know, make decisions. I think it's super important to listen to the people that you're working with. Um, and that's hard to do sometimes, but I think that makes a big difference, you know, is sitting back and actually hearing what people are saying. doesn't mean you have to do what they're saying, but you have to listen to it because I think then that also makes them feel a lot better that they're being heard. Thank you so much for joining us on No Limits. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time to feature one of you as a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. This week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by Jody Skorupski. She is Precious Oaduni. She is the owner of Mountaintop Consulting in Houston, Texas. Here she is to tell you more. Hello, everyone. I'm Precious Williams Oaduni, the president and founder of Mountaintop Consulting, which is a small strategy and branding firm that helps companies drive profitable growth. Oddly enough, the biggest challenge of our first nine years in business has been the rate of our own growth and keeping up with client demand. Uh, We've had the privilege of working with scores of leading companies, and 98% of those folks have hired us for a second engagement, which has meant we've had to grow very quickly. And we've met that demand and that challenge in two ways. First, we've hired experts in lots of other areas, whether it's corporate strategy or digital marketing. And secondly, we found other ways to deliver our services with more scale. And that means we are now available and are doing a lot of our work virtually and online. Congratulations, Precious. Wishing you continued success. And thanks for reaching out to us with the nomination, Jody. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Precious and how she created her company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have career questions, you can send them to me at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, a shout out to the team here that helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 